Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. Blessed to be your pastor. Welcome to you in the overflow. Anybody joining us by way of a video, audio podcast, eight-track tape, I don't know. But uh, we welcome you as well. God bless you. I want to start a new series this morning entitled To All the Scattered Ones. We're going to do a very uh, in-depth study of the book of James, the book of James in the Bible. So right now, take a Bible. Uh, There's probably one in the pew there in front of you if you don't have one. Uh, if, if there's not one in the pew, there may be one in the lap of the person next to you. So make a friend right now and, and follow along. I always want you to know that what I preach comes from God's word. It's not coming from me. Uh, these aren't my ideas. I try as best I can to preach God's word. And I want you to look at God's word today as we go uh, rather verse by verse through the book of James together. If you've ever written a letter in our culture, uh, what are the first words? How do you start a letter? You say, yeah, dear Nancy or dear Mike, yeah. In, in our culture, when we write a letter, the very first words will be uh, who we're addressing the letter to, dear Corbin. Uh, the, the first words will, will indicate who the letter's going to. But, but in the ancient world, uh, it was the very opposite. The very first word of the letter would be the person sending it, which kind of makes sense when you think about it, because when you open a letter, what's the first thing you want to know? Who's this from? Do I owe him money? It's that sort of thing. And so in the ancient world, the very first word of every letter would be the sender, the person that the letter is coming from. So if you open to the book of James and look at the very first word of the letter, it is James. Uh, It is James. James. This letter is from James, a slave of God, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered everywhere. Greetings. That's how his letter begins, which is kind of interesting because you sort of need to know a little bit about who James is. Who is James? Let me ask you one question. How many children did Mary and Joseph have? Mary and Joseph, the parents of Jesus, so you know there's at least one. Y'all are with me. Y'all are way on top of it today. Uh, So they had at least one, but have you ever wondered how many other children did they have? Do you know the answer to that? Okay, again, to the Bible. Open to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, I believe. Matthew 13, verse 55. Okay, get there, read the verse, and then hold up your fingers. Tell me at least, because you won't even know perhaps how many from this verse, but you'll know a, a minimum number, at least how many children did Mary and Joseph have. Okay, you there? Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Jesus is being rejected at his hometown, okay, hometown folks, hometown crowd's always tough. They scoffed, he's just a carpenter's son, and we know Mary, okay, his mother. We know Mary, his mother, and we know his brothers, interesting. And then their names are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So Jesus had how many brothers? Four. So how many boys did Mary and Joseph have in their family? Yeah, at least five, okay, five brothers that we know. The firstborn is Jesus, okay. Now, Jesus has a little bit of different birth story here because Jesus is Mary's son. Remember, Mary's a virgin. So Jesus is God's son, born through the virgin Mary, but not really Joseph's son. If you don't understand it, ask your mama when you get home, okay? Not really Joseph's and God's son through the virgin Mary. So actually, these would be Jesus's, I guess technically we would say half-brothers, 
Say half-brothers. So Jesus had four half-brothers. Their names are James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And then the next verse, and all his sisters. Yeah. So we don't know how many sisters. We have really no idea, but it's obviously more than one. Okay? So Mary and Joseph had at least how many children? At least seven, okay, because they have five boys and at least two girls because it says sisters, plural. Could have been a lot of sisters, no idea, no idea. But Mary and Joseph had at least seven children. Does that blow your mind right from the start? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus was raised in a large family with multiple brothers and sisters. Mary and Joseph raised at least seven children. Pretty amazing. What I want you to notice is the name of Jesus' uh, next brother, the, the second son in Mary and Joseph's family. His name is James. His name is James. So understand, back to the book of James. The book of James is written by Jesus' brother. Okay, let that sink in. It's Jesus' brother. It's his half-brother. Now, notice what he calls himself, because I'm telling you, if I was Jesus' brother, I would be Jesus' redneck brother. You know, I would have a bumper sticker on my truck that said, I am Jesus' brother. I would have T-shirts printed up. I would work it into, I'm Jesus' brother. I would let everybody know. But what does he say? This letter is from James, a slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting. He really doesn't trumpet his qualifications here. He just simply says, I am a slave of God. I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about his brother. Isn't that amazing? If you look through the Gospels, and I encourage you to do so, you'll realize that during Jesus' life and ministry, his brothers and sisters did not believe in him. All through his ministry, when Jesus was teaching, when Jesus is preaching, his brothers did not believe in him. So we, we know that James, when Jesus was preaching, teaching, traveling, healing the sick, all of that, James was not a believer, not at all. James and apparently none of the brothers and none of the sisters were believers at all until after the resurrection. And if you're reading the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that of all of the resurrection appearances that are listed in Scripture, there is one private and personal resurrection appearance that comes to James. So after Jesus died and was buried and then raised from the dead, he makes a special point to come and visit James, his brother. And after that point, James is a believer. James is a believer. So Jesus is not just his, his brother, his half-brother. Jesus becomes his Lord and Savior. Pretty amazing. James goes on then to become the, the pastor, if you will, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And that's what he becomes most famous for. Not so much for being Jesus' brother, but for being the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He becomes very, very important in the early church, as many of Jesus' brothers and sisters did. So James, this is the James who writes this letter. James, a servant of God, a slave of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered everywhere, greetings. And then this is how the letter begins. Let's read together. James chapter 1, verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. That's just an amazing start to a letter. If you want people to listen to you, I don't think you start out that way. Listen, whenever trials come your way, consider that pure joy. 
Yeah, good luck with that. We'll talk about that. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance, your patience has a chance to grow. So let patience grow. For when your patience, your endurance is fully developed, you will be, say the word, perfect. You'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, needing nothing. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, do not doubt. For a person who doubts, a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. Get that? It's an honor to be poor, James says. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you're being tempted... Never say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to, say the word, death. It gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God the Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. That's how the letter begins. Go back to me now with Verse 2, dear brothers and sisters, count it all joy. Consider it pure joy when you fall into many kinds of trials, when, uh, when you have an opportunity for great joy, when troubles come your way, is what the New Living Translation says. Wow, what a way to start. Consider it, count it pure, pure joy when you fall into many kinds of trials. Anybody know anything about trials? Raise your hand. You, you've ever had a hard day. Yeah, absolutely. And James starts his letter by saying, whenever this happens to you, whenever you have any kind of trial, any kind of tribulation, any kind of suffering, testing, you just go ahead and consider that an opportunity to rejoice. Okay, that sounds crazy. And many of you, even though you know that's in the Bible, you don't get that and you don't live that way. And, and, and so let's let the word of God help you. Go forward to verse 4. Let's go to the end of this thing and work. Let's back our way into it. At the very end of this is what James is saying. At the end of this, verse 4, at the very end of this process, you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
Okay, so this is what you know, that at the end of everything, that this process that you are in, in Christ with the Lord, in this process, the end is promised to you, that there's a guarantee here. And at the end of this, what God wants for you is to give you everything. Okay, I can hear the sound of minds being blown right there. God wants to give you everything. Everything good, everything perfect. God's intention is to bless you with everything. In other words, at the end of all of this, you're going to be perfect. You're going to be complete. There's going to be absolutely nothing that you lack. So God's intention for you is that you become perfect. He is going to give you absolutely everything in heaven and earth. You're going to receive it personally. And in a very genuine, real way, you're going to have it all. God wants to give it all to you. That's pretty good news. Would you agree? God's intention and his generosity by his grace, he's going to give you everything. But, and here's the thing, you're going to have to wait for it. Yeah, you're going to have to wait for it. it, it it's a process. And, and, and the fact is, God is going to give you everything, but it's not going to be delivered today. You understand? This is going to take a lifetime for you. It's a process. And in this process, the very important ingredient, according to James, is what the New Living Translation calls endurance. I'm in verse 3 now. Remember, we're backing into this. He wants to give you everything. You're going to have to wait for it. So in the meantime, what you really need more than anything else is endurance. What the King James calls patience. You know that when your faith is tested, your endurance, your patience has a chance to grow. So let it grow for when your endurance, your patience is fully developed, then you'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So understand this process. It is a process where testing, trials, tribulations of all kinds. The word that James uses there is, is multicolored. He says, consider it pure joy when you fall into all colors of trials, temptations, tribulations. Do you understand? They just come in all shapes and sizes, all colors. And when you fall into any kind of trial, any kind of testing, it's an opportunity for you to learn how to endure. Endurance, patience. And when I say patience, you probably think of something passive. You think of going to the doctor's office for a 10 o'clock appointment and then waiting in the waiting room till 1130. And, and, and in that time, you're trying to be patient and, and you're getting madder. And, and I understand that. I've been there. But when James says patience, that's not what he's talking about necessarily. It's not just passive where you just sort of grin and bear it or, or where you just kind of lamaze breathe and somehow get through it. This isn't really what James is saying at all. When he talks about patience or endurance, the old word there would be steadfastness. Steadfastness, it's an old word. It means to stand fast. Now that's kind of funny, it's an oxymoron really, because you might think about running fast, you know, moving fast, but how do you stand fast? How do you stand fast? I mean, how do you stand fast? It's the picture of a, of, a, of a palm tree in a hurricane. It's that kind of picture. It really is that kind of standing. But it's not passive. It, it's, it's not passive. And, and it's not just hanging on for, for, for dear life, which, which reminds me of the time, the first time that we took my, my brother-in-law, Tommy Newton, on a canoe ride. Any of you ever been in a canoe? 
Do you remember the first time you rode in a canoe? What's that like, the first time to ride in a canoe? What's it feel like? It feels like you could tip that canoe over in any minute. It feels so unsteady. And this is just the awesome. Y'all should see Tommy Newton in that canoe. Now, give him credit. He went in it. He went in it. But he never put all of his weight down. You know how that is? So Tommy was in the kind of picture that George Washington crossing the Potomac River painting, except you got to put George Washington in the back of the boat. And Tommy was sitting like this with his paddle across his lap. He never put it in the water. And he had his life jacket tied up around his neck, tight as it would go. And then he gripped the canoe like this. And he rowed. Now, he rode this canoe with my sister who has arthritis paddling, and Shelby in the middle. And if Shelby moved, Tommy would yell at her, stop, don't move. <laughs> because, because it feels like the first time you're in a canoe, it feels like if you move your eyes, you'll turn the whole thing over. It feels that way. And so if, if Shelby waved at us or something, Tommy's like, Shelby, stop. So the whole time, he's riding, we're in this little inlet with not even a ripple, but Tommy's riding like he's about to go off waterfalls, just the whole time, just <laughs> gripping, I mean, gripping the side of that canoe. It was absolutely awesome, okay? That's not what we're talking about here, but that's often how we go through troubles. That's how we are. We, we don't really have the kind of steadfastness that that James talks about, we have something else. We may go through it, but we're not going to like it, and we're going to hang on for dear life, and we may even say bad words, and, and, and we're just praying, and we're gripping, and, and I'm telling you, it, it's not exactly what James means when he says, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. Now, he's not saying that it's fun while you go through it. That's not the point. It's not saying that you should feel joy because there are situations in our lives when it is nearly impossible to feel happiness or to feel pleasant. I mean, it's frightening. It's scary. So James uses more of a mathematical word. He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. In other words, somehow, if you could get a bigger picture, it all adds up to joy. Do you understand the difference? It, it, it all adds up to joy. In other words, it's not so much that what I'm going through is joyful, but on the other side of this is something so good that it's worth it. So that even in the middle of it, it changes my experience of it because I know that no matter what I have to go through, the path that I'm on is led by Christ, and at the end of it, he's going to give me everything, make me perfect, and I'm going to be lacking in nothing. You understand? So it's not so much the, the, the quality of the experience when you're in the middle of it. It's just the knowledge of what's waiting for you on the other side. I, I mean, friends, you're going to go through stuff. I, we've all got to go through stuff. It's really not an option for you. You're going to face trials of every color, every shape, every size. You just are. So what James here is offering you is really the only choice you can make. You can't choose whether or not you're going to go through trials, but you can choose how you respond to the testing. You can choose your attitude. You can choose, you can choose joy. I said you don't have other options. I guess you do because I, I, I know how we are. Some of us just choose to be bitter. Some of us just choose to, to go through trials and, and they just make us horrible people. And, and that's a choice we make. 
It's just because you could choose joy, but instead you just choose to, to lash out. You know people like that? They just get mean, and the trials of life don't work patience and endurance and joy in their souls. Instead, they just lash out at people. They lash out at the people close enough to help them, close enough to love them. Some people just, just, just lash out. Other people, I guess you'd say, just, just give out. We quit. When things get difficult, we just give up our faith. We give up on God. We just walk away. And the point is here, if you don't go through this, then you never really find out what God has for you on the other side of it. You, you quit in the middle, and therefore, the patience, the endurance never has its chance to work in your heart. You can't give up. You, you can't lash out. You can count it an opportunity for great joy, James said. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. And so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now verse 5 goes into, the, it seems like a, a subject change. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. Now this is perhaps one of the, one of the few prayers in scripture that, that you're guaranteed an answer to. Guaranteed an answer. If you pray for wisdom, God gives you wisdom. It's, it's guaranteed right here. So here you go. Here's a prayer that you know you can pray, and God will answer it exactly as you pray it. God will give you wisdom because God knows you need it. You need it. I, I, I do too. But, but let's keep the verse in context. We're talking about trials, testing of many kinds. James says that there are many, many kinds of tests, many kinds of trials, many kinds of temptations. So if you lack wisdom, okay? So I feel like the... The point of this verse in its context is simply that you've got to know what kind of test, what kind of trial you're going through. You need wisdom even as you stand fast in the middle of what you're going through. You need wisdom from God to understand. And if you ask God for that wisdom, you are guaranteed to receive the wisdom that you need. Unless, there's one condition here, unless you... I think King James says doubt, unless you doubt, unless you're double-minded. The, the, the Greek word that James uses there really means to go back and forth. In other words, when you come to God asking for wisdom, asking for God's help, you can't go back and forth on God. You can't waver. Now, you've probably seen this in your life. Any of you parents, grandparents, raise your hands. You have kids in your life. You ever had that kid that says, Mama, Mama, I need you to pull my tooth. And then when you get close to the kid, what does she say? Don't touch it. Yeah. See, that's, that's what James is talking about here. It's, it's the going back and forth. I can remember being a kid and I would get a splinter in my foot because I was a redneck kid in the country and I always got stuff in my feet. And I would come in and say, Mama, I got a splinter in my foot. So mom would come over and I'd put it up there and she'd get close to it and I'd say, don't touch it, don't touch it. And so what, moms are great, so what would mom say? Oh, poor baby, oh, poor baby, I'll just make you banana pudding. Isn't that cool? Moms are like that, you know, don't touch it, you know. So she lets me lay on the couch and I just leave my foot up with the splinter and then she brings me banana pudding. I love mom, moms are great. But now when I got married, I did not marry my mother. <laughs> I married a nurse. Now, my wife's amazing. Y'all know Casey. She, 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 is, she is a great, great woman. And she's an excellent nurse. But I'm telling you, she's not mama. 
So, so, you know, early wedding days, early marriage days, I would come and say, oh, Casey, I, I think I got a splinter in my foot. I think I got... So Casey disappears into the kitchen. What's she doing? She's sterilizing instruments. Yeah, Casey goes in, and if you watch her, she'll get tweezers and, and odd, like, steak knives out of the drawer, and she'll get in, like, an open flame and start sterilizing things. Because what's she going to do? She will be removing a splinter. Understand. Was that what I wanted? I, I, I told her I had a splinter, but what did I want? Banana pudding. Yeah, yeah, understand? Yeah. I, I, I don't really want her coming at me with, you know, glowing red hot, you know, tweezers and steak knives. You know, it, it, banana pudding, honey. I helped send her to medical school, and somehow she missed the entire chapter on the medicinal quality of banana pudding. She totally... Miss that. So she comes at me with instruments. And understand how this works. It's that way, it's that going back and forth. It's that help me, don't touch me kind of attitude. And this is how many of us come to God in our spiritual lives. Are you with me? This is how we come to God. We say, God, help me. God, I need you. Help me. Don't touch me. God, I need you. I need you to fix my marriage, but I don't really want you up in my face. You understand? I need you to help my finances, but now you just keep your fingers out of my purse. This is how we come to God. It's, it's double-mindedness. It's going back and forth. And the Bible says if this is how you come to God, don't expect anything. Don't expect anything because if God is going to do his work in your life, he's going to have to get up in your life. And you're going to have to want him. And you're going to have to let him. And you're going to have to sit back and let him do what he does. And sometimes it will hurt. Sometimes what God needs to do in your life is going to be painful. Because I'm telling you, God's work is, is soul work. And souls are very tender. Very tender. But God is not going to hurt you intentionally. God is not going to hurt you in any way that doesn't ultimately heal you. You've just got to let him do what he has to do. Do not waver. Don't go back and forth. For a person like that is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. You understand that that might describe the problems you have in, in your spiritual life, in your Christian life? The problem is you're divided. You, you say you want God, but you also really want a lot of things that aren't God, and God's not going to share your heart with the world. He won't. If you want God... You can have God, but when God comes, he wants all of you. You understand? He won't be taking part of you. If you plan on just dividing out the portions of your life that God is welcome to, but then keeping things to yourself, James says don't expect much from the Lord. It's, it doesn't work that way. Jump down to verse 12 with me. God blesses those who patiently endure testing. And now another word is thrown in here, temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And, and now remember, when you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. Okay. Now, James is having to, to work on some words because 
the words for him are the same. He's using the same word in the Greek, the word that has to do with testing and trials and even temptation. It's all the same word, so now he's trying to make a distinction. Because you're going to go through all kinds of trials and your faith will be tested. And God can do that. God will sometimes allow your faith to be tested because that's a part of God doing what needs to be done in your life to purify your faith. But, James, now I want you to understand that, that temptation is different. The temptation to sin is different, and God doesn't do that. In, in your testing, God is never going to tempt you to sin. God doesn't do that, and you need to understand that. You, you need to be very clear on this. Now, it is the devil that will always produce temptation for you. That, that comes from the devil and also from inside of you. We'll get to that in a second. The devil loves to tempt you. And, and the thing about the devil is he, he, he's, he's actually lazy, and so he'll sort of leave you alone for a while, and then he'll come after you when he feels like he has a better chance at, at, at destroying you. And so here's the thing, when you're otherwise being tested, even if the Lord is, is allowing your faith to be tested for a time, and that's not a temptation to sin, it's just a, a season of your life when you have to stand fast, you understand? But in those moments of your life when it takes so much energy just to endure, when it's taking so much faith simply to trust God every day, those are the very same moments when the devil will see to it that you get tempted. And you need to understand that the temptation to sin never, ever, ever comes from God. I'm not sure you're understanding that. The temptation to sin never, ever, ever comes from God. You see, I, I want you to understand this because I, I, I've talked to enough people in the world and so have you. I know how people are. I've talked to the lady who was in the middle of a very difficult marriage, really having trouble in her marriage, and she was, she was frustrated and, and, and about to just walk away from her husband. And she says at that very time, suddenly there was this man at work, this man at work, and, and he was always so nice to her, and he told her that she looked nice every day. And then they started talking, you know, started kind of taking breaks together. And then after work, they started going out. And, 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 and eating together. And, and before long, this woman would say, Brother Tim, you know, I just feel like, I feel like this other man was just God's way of showing me that I could be happy. No. No. Do you understand? The other man at work that you've been going out with and, and taking breaks with, that's what we call being unfaithful to your husband. Do you understand? And, and the little affair that you've been having after work, that's not God's way of saying you can be happy. That is your way of flirting with adultery. Did you understand? It is a temptation to sin. And you must never, ever rationalize your sin in such a way where somehow God's blessing you by bringing sin into your life. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because we play these games. When, when what you want is really what you want, you'll usually find a way to convince yourself that God wants that for you too. And it is a lie. It's always a lie. And it leads you into sin. And this is what James is saying. God does not do that. God will never, ever lead you into sin. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. So where does it come from? Here we go. Verse 14. Temptation comes from our own desires. All right, so where does the temptation to sin come from? Say it. It comes from inside of you. 
That mess is in you. It's in you. So you can't even ever say, well, the devil made me do it, because no, he didn't. He, he didn't. The devil can't make you do anything. The thing is, you have desires already in you. And the reason certain situations bring those desires out is because they're in you. They're already in you. The, the diagram of a sin begins with the desires that are already inside your heart. This is what you want. This is what you want to do. So notice how it goes. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. Now the, the Greek words that James uses there are words related to baiting a trap. So in other words, uh, temptation sort of operates by, by setting a trap for you, but the bait is always something related to your desires, something related to what you want. That, that, that's the bait that, that is set. And so the temptation just simply dangles out in front of you something that you already want really, really bad. It's an opportunity to indulge your desires. And it draws you out. It, it drags you away. The scripture says. Now, I know sometimes you like to think that temptation comes to you like a, you know, like the redneck fishermen that go noodling. Rednecks in the house? I mean, I know, I know there are. I saw your trucks out back. Um, Y'all know what noodling is? Yeah. What's noodling? Yeah. Yeah. It's like hillbilly hand fishing where, where you go out into the water and what do you do? You go to the holes where the giant catfish live, and you do what? You reach in. Now, what happens when you reach in? Yeah, it bites you. Yeah, except its mouth is big enough to swallow your whole arm. So while he's swallowing your arm, you grab his spleen and pull him out. Yeah, okay. That's called noodling. Yeah, that's noodling. Temptation doesn't work that way. I know that you like to say, well, I couldn't help it. Oh, my goodness, I was, I was just dragged into it. I couldn't help it. I was just out of control. No, 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 no. You can always help it. You always have a choice. Honestly, temptation is a kind of path, and, and you take steps down the path. And I promise you it's a whole lot easier to say no and turn around before you get too far. See, our problem is... Often when it comes to sin, we like to see how close we can get to it. We want to know where the line is. You understand? We like to know exactly how far can I go, and we want somebody to tell us where's the line because we want to go live on that line. How close can I get without sinning because that's, that's where I want to live my life. But, but, but no, when it comes to sin and temptation, it's not seeing how close you can get to it. It's seeing how far away from it you can stay. You understand? It's a step down a path, and it's not going to noodle you out. It's not going to grab you by the gills and, and yank you. No, no, no. It'll just simply place before you the bait, that something that you desire, and it'll wait. It'll just wait. And the key to your Christian life is learning how not to go for the bait. you got to know how to say no. you got to know how to say no early. You have to know how to remove from your life the opportunities, the availability of sin. You just got to know how to do that. If you're on a diet, you can't bring little Debbies in the house, you understand? And if you're trying to, uh, to uh, somehow escape your addiction to internet pornography, you might have to get the computer out of your house, you understand? You have to remove the availability for sin. You have to see how far away from it you can get. B because it's a process too. 
Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. And these desires give birth to sin. Desire gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So this sin on the front end that just looks like something that you want, a desire, maybe something you've always wanted, it's, you don't see that the path you're stepping out on leads to sin and then leads to destruction, leads to death. But that's exactly what happens. So bottom line, there are lots and lots of kinds of trials and, and tribulations, but, uh, but the temptation to sin, that never comes from God. That comes from inside of you, and you need to learn how to tell yourself no. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters, verse 17. Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father, the Father of lights, who never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. In, in this life, you're going to go through stuff. Jesus said, in this, in this world, you will have trouble. That part's not optional. And when it happens, you mustn't think that something has gone wrong in your spiritual life. The scripture just says you're going to fall into many kinds of trials and, and tests. You just are. In those moments, though, you actually have an opportunity for joy not because of how the trial is experienced but, but because you know that whatever comes to you somehow has come through the Father's hand and that even in your heartbreak, even in your test somehow th th there's a treasure formed within you as the hymn says what you just simply must never forget is that whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father. Everything good and perfect comes from Him. And He never changes. He, he never changes. That means He doesn't have days when He's in a good mood and days when He's in a bad mood like your dad. You understand? He never changes. He is always the source of things good and perfect. And He is always, always, always ready to love and, and forgive and bless your life and nothing is going to thwart his intention to bless you even the present trial it cannot throw off track God's intention to bless you because notice what it says he chose he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word and we out of all creation became his prized possession you are his prized possession I don't know what your prized possession is but, but, but think of whatever it is in, in the world that's most dear to you you always take care of your prized possession you always know where your prized possession is you know what it's worth and you will never ever ever lose it never let any harm come to it it's your prized possession and you are the Lord's 
prized possession. You are his favorite son. You are his favorite daughter. In this life, you're going to go through trials and you're going to go through tests. And there will be moments when you will feel so far away from him, but you will never be far away from him. You are his prized possession. In this life, you will at times feel like you're about to come to harm. You're going to feel like that this cannot end well, that somehow your whole life is now ruined and nothing good can ever come. But you've got to understand, you are his prized possession. And already he has determined that the end of this for you is going to be good. He's already determined and he sees it all the way through that in the end, you're going to be good and perfect and lacking in nothing. He's going to give you everything. You are his prized possession. I don't know what test or trial you're facing today. I have no idea. All I know is tests and trials come in all colors, shapes, and sizes. You've got yours and I've got mine. But in the middle of that test, in the middle of that trial, I I know one thing. I know that God is the giver of all things good and perfect and what he gives to me will always be good and perfect and I know that I'm his prized possession he will never leave me he will never forsake me and somehow when I factor that in and add it all up it all adds up to joy understand when I factor in his love for me and what he's going to do for me one day at the end, I, I see what I'm going through, and I know that somehow it all adds up to joy. Let's pray together. Pray with me. God, we don't know why you love us so. And we confess that we really don't understand life. We, we don't know why things happen the way things happen and we really don't understand why the road often turns the way it does God we don't understand the test and the trials that we face so God we beg you for wisdom we we want to know and understand as much as we can know and understand God I pray that even in the moments of testing and trial when we're when we're spiritually exhausted I pray Lord that you would continue to deliver us from the evil one Lord, we know that you are never the one who presents us the opportunity to sin. So, Lord God, help us to keep our hearts pure, even in the trial, even in the test. God, most of all, I pray that every person in the sound of my voice who knows you, every believer, will begin to understand how they are your favorite daughter, your your favorite son. Help us to know that Your face is never turned away from us. Your back is never turned to us. Your hand is always outstretched to us, Lord. There is never a moment in any day, light or dark, when we are beyond the reaches of your love and beyond the reception of your blessings, God. Help us today to trust you, Lord. Help us to stay true and help us, Lord Jesus, to stand fast to stand fast knowing that in the end of this Lord you're going to give us everything in the meantime Lord give us endurance and hope as we wait we 
We pray these things in the name of Jesus who loved us enough to die for us. Amen.